here's one of the things that I've discovered about getting older. Uh, there's a whole lot more like tension, stress, stiffness in my body. Anybody else notice that? You know, as you get older, things do, you just, you're stiffer, you're sore, you know, getting out of bed in the morning is a bit of a problem, right? Is that, is that just me or is that everybody, right? Some of us. If you're getting older, you know all about the tension that you feel in your body. And, and one of the things that I found really interesting, I turned 50 this year, by the way, you know, just in a few months. But don't I look good for 50? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you guys are so good. But anyway, one of the things I've noticed about getting older is that people start to tell you that you have to stretch, have you noticed that? Like, <laughs> I was thinking about this this past week. I was on a little vacation. We, my wife and I and my parents went out to Eagle Crest and kind of hung out in the smoke and the fire and all that stuff. It was awesome. Uh, it was like 87 and smoky, you know. It's like <laughs> I, I shortened my life expectancy by six months on vacation this week because of the smoke, by the way. But anyway, I was out there, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about over the last few months the number of people that have told me, Gareth, you've got to start stretching, you know, uh, my doctor has told me that I have to start stretching. My chiropractor has told me that I've got to start stretching. I went to the acupuncturist and they told me that I had to start stretching. Even the dentist told me I had to start stretching. What is it with stretching, right? And uh, I thought, actually, I thought, well, you know what? I'm not going to do it alone this morning. You guys, up on your feet. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, up on your feet. Some of you are really good. Pam Anderson's on our staff, and she's like, you guys, you got to stretch, you know? She has the whole staff stretching. So here we go. Here we go. Just put your hands in the air like you just don't care. Okay, little stretch that way, little stretch that way. Now out in front of you, out in front of you, okay? Little rotate, okay? Now hands behind your back, little, okay, high five the person next to you. Look at that. Great job, everybody. You stretched this morning. That's awesome. Hey, Let's make that a practice together this fall, okay? All right. Well, that's it. I'm done. Uh, so let's just pray. Close the service. Glad you came today. Some of you actually applauded. Oh, that makes me feel sad. Anyway, but actually, what I want to do today is I actually want to talk about stretching. Uh, not like stretching, stretching. But, but I do want us to recognize that as a follower of Jesus, we live in attention, Right? And tension, you feel tension, uh, you know, when there's pressures and stresses uh, that go on. And, and in the natural body, you know, as I'm getting older, what I'm realizing is I actually have to stretch because my muscles need to be kind of worked a little bit so that when I put a demand on them, they'll actually follow through and do what they're supposed to do. Well, the same thing is true for you and my spiritual life. And, and you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we live in attention. Now, we've talked a lot about this over the last year or so. You know, there's the tension uh, that we experience between these two stories that are competing for your affection and for your attention and for your allegiance. The story of the kingdom of God versus the story of this world. We also, as followers of Jesus, live in this tension between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so many of the Puritans and those who were kind of gone before us in the faith, they would yearn for the day that Jesus would return. Why? Because everything would be as it was meant to be. And so you and I as followers of Jesus actually live in attention. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to unpack for us, how is it, that, how do we live out in the midst of that tension? How is it we're supposed to live? Now there's a few things that the Bible actually teaches us and instructs us on. Uh, and the first thing that it does is this, is um, don't be surprised that you live in attention, right? 
Like, don't be surprised that you feel a tension around your faith. In fact, Paul, oftentimes when he was writing, he would, the New, the New Testament writers, Paul most especially, would actually refer to this. In fact, look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He said this, Behold, I urge you, that's you and I, we're followers of Jesus Christ, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, right? So there's that tension that we feel. And look at how he described us in that verse. He says that you're a sojourner or an exile, an exile is someone from another country that lives now in a new country, right? I was an exile. I was an alien when I first came here over 31 years ago from Ireland. But he also says, hey, you're a sojourner. In other words, you're just passing through. That this world in which we live is the place that we now reside, but it's not our ultimate home. The way things are right now is not the way they're always going to be. And so Paul, when he's writing, or sorry, Peter, when he's writing here, he is saying, hey, I want you to have a right frame of reference. Don't be surprised about the tension that you feel because this tension that you feel is because you're a sojourner. You're just passing through. You're in exile. You're on a journey. But Paul also describes us another way. In fact, he says this in Ephesians chapter 2, 19. He says, so now that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So on the one hand, as it relates to the story of this world, man, we're exiles, we're just passing through, we're on a journey, but as it relates to the story of the kingdom of God, you're no longer a stranger, you're no longer an alien, you're a fellow member, a citizen of the household of faith. You're a part of a different story. You're a part of a different kingdom. And so what Jesus, or what Paul and Peter are wanting us to understand is don't be surprised that you're living and experiencing this tension. You live in the midst of a tension. And, and Jesus wants to help us understand how is it that we're supposed to live in the midst of that tension. Well, that's what I want to try to do during, through this series. I want to answer the question, how do we live in the midst of the tension? Now, how many of you know God has an answer? Like if the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament are telling us, don't be surprised that you live in the midst of this tension. You, you are being pulled, almost pulled, like in this tug of war between these two stories, between these two kingdoms, between these two ways of doing life. So don't be surprised that you feel a tension, but there's a way for you to live in the midst of the tension. And Jesus has an answer. And I want to tell you today, the answer to how do you live in the midst of that tension is the church. Jesus designed the church to be that instrument that was going to help you and I live in the midst of that tension. And so, you know, what is the church? I don't know that sounds like maybe I'm, you know, preaching to the choir, so to speak, right? I get it. I'm here. I'm at church, you know, and when you maybe were growing up, you know, remember that little thing? I always, I can never do this right. You know, this is the church. This is the steeple. Look inside at all the beautiful people, right? And, and what is the church? Well, is the church, well, it's not a building. You know, it's not a gathering. It's the people, right? And I actually want to suggest to you that actually the church is all of the above, you know, because one of the things that's happening in the world in which we live is we say, well, the church is all about the people, so don't worry about gathering, 
Well, actually, the Bible in Hebrews tells us not to forsake the gathering together of the saints, right? We're actually called to gather with one another. And so church is the gathering. Church is the people and the community, those who have given their life to Jesus and are in community walking together to follow that out. Church is kind of also a building, obviously, in which we gather. And so church is all of those things, but there's this really interesting verse that Paul writes to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. Now, Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus. Ephesus, to give you some context, is like a, like a, like a biblical Los Angeles. So not the best city in the world. Filled with Californians, I tell you. <laughs> if you're Californian, I apologize. I, I repent right now. But, but Ephesus was like a biblical uh, L.A., and so it's a large city, it's a melting pot, it's got, it's a port, it's got all of the, it's kind of an epicenter of merchandise or, or of, of commercial, you know, kind of endeavors, all this kind of stuff. It's a thriving city in, in biblical times. And so Timothy, this young pastor, is pastoring a church in Ephesus, and the church actually is, they believe that the church in Ephesus was some 24,000 people. Now that's a pretty big church. And they didn't even have a microphone or sound system. I don't know how they did all that. But anyway, here's Paul writing to Timothy. And he writes in this letter about the church. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. He says, if I delay, I'm writing so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, isn't that interesting that he uses that word behave? Because in our modern day world, that's a little bit offensive, right? Because I want to be able to do whatever I want to do, right? But Paul's writing to Timothy and he's saying, hey, I'm writing so that you can understand how you ought to behave in the household of faith. You see, there's, there's something to be said that when God rescues me through his son Jesus and he adds me to the church, he adds me to a community of believers that have something as their focus, something at the epicenter, something at the foundation, and that I ought to live in relationship to that in a particular way. And so Paul's writing to Timothy saying, I'm writing so that you can understand how you ought to relate, how you ought to behave, how you ought to do life and live out your life as it relates to the household of God, which is a little term that he uses to define the church. And then he goes on and he says this, which is the church of the living God. Whose church is it? Is it man's church or is it God's church? And Paul is writing to Timothy saying, you need to understand that first and foremost, the church, which is the body of Christ, is the household or the family of God. And it's not, it's not man's idea, it's God's idea. It's not something that man initiated, it's something that God initiated. Now God, he doesn't do anything that isn't perfect and isn't what it's supposed to be. We get in the way, we mess it up, don't we? And so your experience of church might be something that maybe was hurtful or wounded, or I'm going to kind of keep myself at a little bit of a distance because I don't want that to happen again. And I'm here to tell you today, man, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but the church is the household of God. It's the living, it's the church of the living God. It's God initiated. It's God's idea. It's sustained by God. And then he goes on and he says this, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's a really fun word to say. Can I just say that? Buttress. Like, who, who uses that word, right? You know, the church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, what uh, it's actually, it doesn't say a truth. It says it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. 
So the truth to which the church has been given is not, a, not one truth amongst many truths, it's the truth. And what's so interesting is that Paul's writing to a group of believers that are gathered in Ephesus. Ephesus was this, like I said, like this thriving, important city. And there was a temple in the city of Ephesus on a hillside called the Temple of Artemis, which was a temple that was used with all kinds of prostitution and pagan worship and religion that was going on. But you could see the, the, this temple of Artemis. You could see it from anywhere pretty much in Ephesus. So look up to the hillside and you would see the Temple of Artemis. Well, the construction of the Temple of Artemis, they consider it to be one of the, I believe, one of the wonders of the ancient world because there were a hundred pillars that were these massive pillars that held up this roof. And so no matter where you were in the city, you would see this majestic kind of roof line that was held up by all of these pillars, a hundred of them. And so when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, they knew exactly what he was talking about. That the church is a pillar that holds up, that proclaims the truth about who God is. And so the, the first thing that we've got, to, one of the things we've got to recognize that, that how do we live out this tension? Well, the tension that we, the way we live it out is that we're in and a part of the church. God's answer to how we live it out is the church. And the purpose of the church is to pro- proclaim, but also to protect the truth that is the gospel. It's why Paul said it's a pillar that holds up, that proclaims the truth of who God is. But it's also a buttress, which is a, 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 an architectural element that would actually support and strengthen a wall that would protect from something coming from the outside. And so the church is a pillar that proclaims, but it's a buttress that also protects the truth of the gospel that we've been entrusted with. And so we need to recognize that what Jesus is calling us to is Jesus says, look, don't be surprised that you're living in the midst of this tension. That's why you feel like, man, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile, but I'm not a stranger, I'm, a, I'm not an alien, right? I'm living in this tension. Don't be surprised. Well, how do we live in the tension? You live in the tension by being a part of the church, which is the pillar and the buttress of the truth of the gospel. This is how we live. This is how we're supposed to operate. You know, the way of thinking about it is this. The church is a little bit like an embassy of the kingdom of God here on earth. How many of you have you ever traveled overseas? We, my, my wife and I, years ago, it was when we were first married, or maybe we weren't even married, but we traveled uh, overseas, and uh, we were in Ireland, actually, and um, she lost her passport, right? You lost your passport, see? I'm not lying. Keep them just <laughs> keeping the, the, the pillar of truth right here. Um, anyway. She lost her passport, and what was the, what did we do? Well, we, we don't have a, in Northern Ireland, we don't have an embassy, but we did have a U.S. consulate, and so functions like an embassy, and so we go to the embassy, and that embassy was a place where we were able to get fixed what had, was broken, right? My daughter, she goes to school in Washington, D.C., and where, she, where her school is, is, that, is right where all of the embassies in Washington, D.C. are located, and so one of the things that, that didn't really happen during COVID, but it's just kind of started back up again, and she's actually in Israel, so she doesn't get to participate, which is okay by me. Anyway, one of the things that embassies do is that embassies would throw a party in D.C., and then they would invite students from the university to come to the embassy. Well, the students love it. You know why they love it? Because in America, you have to be 21 years 
years old to drink, right? So they had to do it illegally. But when you go to the Ethiopian embassy and they're throwing a party, you only have to be 18 so they can drink legally. I mean, who are we kidding? College students drink, right? We know that, right? And so my point is simply this, is that the embassy is a representation of the values and the vision of another nation within another nation. That's what the church is. The church is an embassy. A church is a representation of the kingdom of God here on earth. And so when people enter into the church, when people encounter the church, what they should be encountering is an expression, an experience of the kingdom of God as it exists here on earth until Jesus Christ returns again. And so this is what the church is. The church is an embassy that's, that's communicating the vision and the values of the kingdom of God. The church, and we'll discover this through this series, is designed to strengthen you, to build you up, to equip you, to challenge you, to help you to become who Jesus has called you to become. Paul said it this way, you're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed to what? Into the image of Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of the church is really, really clear. The purpose of the church is to help us become more like Jesus. It's a representation of the kingdom of God, an embassy here on earth, that when we gather, when we be the church, we ought to be coming more and more and more like Jesus as a result of that. We've actually said it this way. We've, we've a couple of things. In February, if you remember, we actually talked about our pursuits as a church family. And there were four things that we said, hey, we as a church family are pursuing. One of those things that we said was that we, are, uh, we pursue uh, belonging to and participating in a loving, formative, and diverse covenant community that's unified around Jesus. We are a Christ-centered community. Why? Because that's our purpose to help each one of us and to help us as a community of believers become more and more like Jesus. In fact, in our statement of faith, we actually said this way, that the purpose of the local church is to lead people to Christ and bring them to maturity in him, establishing God's kingdom here on earth. And so God has called the church which means God has called Abundant Life Church, which means God has called you and I to a very clearly defined purpose. That is to help people become more and more and more like Jesus. And as more of us become more like Jesus, we're establishing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. But there's a problem. And you know what the problem is? Cruise ships. <laughs> yeah, cruise ships are the problem. How many of you like to cruise? Now, how many of you actually know the story about how cruise ships got their start? Well, I'll tell you. In the 20th century, uh, the way that you would travel from America to Europe or Europe to America was you would travel on an ocean liner. And the ocean liner would take you from point A to point B. It would take you from New York City to Southampton on the south coast of England or wherever else in Europe it was that you were going to go. In fact, that's why they were called ocean liners, because they would go in a line from point A to point B. The ocean liner was the vehicle that would move you from one point to another point. It was a vehicle that would get you from your starting point to your destination. That was the whole point of an ocean liner. But what happened in 1952 was uh, the, 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 there was a problem for the ocean lining, ocean lining industry, or ocean liners, and it's called the Comet. Some of you know this, the Comet, it's actually the de Havilland 
Comet was the first commercial airplane ever to fly across the Atlantic. And suddenly, what used to take six days now only took six hours. You could get from New York to London in six hours on this, new, this commercial jet. Well, all of a sudden, ocean liners have a problem, right? Because who wants to travel six days on an ocean liner where you can make that trip in six days? Well, some or six hours. Some innovative ship owners, uh, ocean liner owners, they came up with this idea. Well, why don't we convert our ocean liners to cruise ships? Now, I've never been on a cruise. I'm not hating on cruise ships. You know, some of you really love, people that love to go on cruises really love to go on cruises, right? Like, how many, how many again, how many of you been on a cruise? Yeah, you love it, you go do it again, right? Okay, that was, that was not a good commercial. That's okay, that's okay. Some of your fellow cruisers are upset at you right now. But what, what these owners did was they figured, why don't we retrofit these ocean liners and let's put like all kinds of stuff on them, right? And so you've, you've maybe, maybe you've cruised on a ship like this, right? There's like swimming pools and restaurants and movie theaters and bowling alleys. Like who bowls on a ship for goodness sakes, right? And you know, how, you know how it works, right? You get on a cruise ship and you leave your starting point and you go in a big circle and you come right back to where you started, right? And so the point being is that these innovative owners of these ocean liners that used to be vehicles that would move you from point A to point B actually converted the ocean liner to become the destination. And so you get on the ship and, and if you don't want to, you don't have to leave the ship at all because there's all kinds of entertainment on the ship. And the problem, or not, not, that, not that it's necessarily a problem, but, but the idea is that you board the ship, the ship becomes your destination, and you end up coming right back to where you started from. Well, unfortunately, what's happened in the church world uh, over the last maybe 50, 60 years in North America is that the church has been, it, the church's purpose, the church's definition the, the, what the church is actually called to do has been redefined over the last 50, 60 years. And, and, and rather than being the vehicle that moves you from point A to point B, moves you to becoming more and more like Jesus, the church has actually become the destination. Oh, yeah, yeah, I only go to, they have a good children's ministry. They have a water slide in their kids' ministry, you know. Or the baptismal's super cool because they, they've got like a slide that goes down in and... I'm just kidding. That's not actually true. But my point is simply this, that what can tend to happen and what has happened actually in America is that we have redefined the purpose of the church, not as a vehicle that helps me to become more like Jesus, but a destination that makes me feel good, that entertains me, that the worship sounds good. The kids' ministry is great. And by the way, we want all of those things and more. We want to be the very best that we can be. But we ought not to lose sight of the purpose for which the church has been built and established by Jesus Christ. And that is to help a people become more and more like Jesus. And so we have a clearly defined purpose. And that is to help every single one of us and us as a community become more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus, to think more like Jesus, to live life more like Jesus, to do things the way that Jesus would do it. It's why our mission statement is to live out God's story the way that Jesus showed us because we want to be like Jesus. He is the foundation, the epicenter. He is our all in all when it comes to building and establishing this church. 
This is what God has called us to. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we become that kind of a church? You know, I was thinking, in fact, I I told Jenny last night, you know, I was sitting thinking about this idea that, you know, this is who I am right now. Whether you like it or not, this is who I am, right? But if I want to become Dwayne Johnson, do you smell what the rock is cooking, right? You know, some of you don't know who Dwayne Johnson is. He's the rock. Some of you now don't know who the rock is. He was this wrestler who's now this actor. And he's, you know, he's buff and good looking and all these kinds of stuff. And so if I want to be, this is who I am, but if I want to become that, I can't just look at the picture of Dwayne Johnson and somehow I'll become him. There are certain things that I have to do that are going to help me become him. There are certain parts uh, that I have to build into my life, right? Like I should probably eat a whole lot less sugar, okay? You know that's my problem. I should probably exercise a little bit more. I should probably have more sleep, right? There's things that I ought to focus on that will help me become that, Well, in the same way, if the purpose of the church is to help people become more like Jesus, we don't just say that. There's actually some things that we've got to focus upon. And Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, actually gave gave us three things that we as a church ought to focus on that will help us to become who God has called us to become. And there are three words that once I say them, you're going to go, oh, yeah, I knew that. And it's simply this. Paul said it this way, and you've heard it maybe at a wedding, you've heard it when, or you've seen it when you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but when you start reading the New Testament and you see it everywhere, what you realize is that Paul used these three things as a diagnostic tool to figure out how healthy a church was or wasn't. And these were three things, can I call it this? They're three pieces of the genetic code of the church that actually help the church be the church. And the three things that Paul left us with were this, faith, hope, and love. And you, you've heard that phrase, I'm sure, before. You know, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, it talks, you know, the great, you know, the, talks about the, these things that establish the faith, hope, and love, and the greater of these is love, and all of these kinds of things, right? And so we, you've heard that, but when you start reading the New Testament, you start realizing, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. Paul, in all of his letters, is writing to these churches, and he uses this tripart axiom to diagnose the health of a church. Is the church functioning the way the church is supposed to be functioning? Well, let's take a look at these three things, faith, hope, and love. And this is what Paul does. And so what I want to do over the next three weeks is I want to look at just three churches. We're going to look today really quickly at the church in Rome. We're going to look next week at the church in Corinth. And the following week, we're going to look at the church in Thessalonica. And what we're going to recognize is that this is the DNA. This is the genetic code. This is the the, the mechanism inside the cellular system of the church that causes the church to be what the church is actually supposed to be. And the first thing I want to look at is this idea of faith. Now, our challenge, of course, is that um, when it comes to faith, uh, there's lots of kind of definitions of faith. And sometimes in some Christian circles, we define faith in a really funny, mystical, kind of crazy way. Like, if I just believe hard enough, it'll happen. It's like a Disney movie, you know? I believe, I believe, I believe. Oh, nope, it hasn't come. I believe, I believe. It's like, you know, it's like Christmas, like Christmas Eve. You know, I just believe that Santa's going to leave this for me, right? And sometimes in Christian circles, what we do is that we reduce faith to this kind of believism, that if I just believe hard enough, then it'll happen. And the problem with that is when it doesn't happen, is it because you didn't believe hard enough or because it wasn't God's will or like, where does all that lie? 
And I think it's because in many respects, we've maybe had a poor definition for faith in the church. We almost treat faith like something that we initiate. And if I believe hard enough, if I trust hard enough, if I rely hard enough, then it's all going to come true. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. In fact, Hebrews is the letter that probably helps us best understand what faith is. In fact, it's known as the letter of faith. If you were to take New Testament survey, the, the, the description of Hebrews would be the letter of faith. In other words, you want to know what faith is? Go to the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you want to know what faith really is, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and, and it's this beautiful language. And then the writer, the author, he gives us all of these Old Testament superheroes of faith to help us better understand. And so you have Noah. And, and you know the story of Noah, right? Noah woke up one day and he goes, God, the world in which we live is so evil. You really need to judge and deal with it. So I'll tell you what, I'll build a boat. You make it rain. We'll wipe everybody out and we'll start over, right? That's the story of Noah, isn't it? Because Noah initiated something with God, right? No, 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 that's not the story of Noah. God initiated, Noah responded in obedience, didn't he? Moses, God initiated, Moses responded in obedience, right? God initiated, Esther responded in obedience. And the point that I simply want you to understand this morning is that faith is a response to something that God initiates. Faith is me living in response to something that God has done and I now order my life a particular way because I trust him above all else. Because my deepest affection, my highest allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Something that he initiated, I'm going to live in response to that. And this is what the Bible teaches us that faith is. In fact, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, close to the end of the letter, Paul describes faith this way. He says this, so faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. And what Paul is trying to help the Romans understand is that faith is a response to something that God initiates. And because faith is something, not just that God initiates, because it's a response to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ought to order the way in which we live our lives. Faith becomes central. Faith becomes foundational to how you and I live out our lives. In fact, this is what Paul, when he was writing this letter to the Romans, was trying to help them understand. The Roman, Romans is such an interesting church, right? So, so the Roman church, remember Rome is the capital of the civilized world. Rome was like where all the smartest people were. It's where the military was based. It's where Caesar was, right? Like you couldn't be in a more important place. And so <coughs> there's a group of, excuse me, ticklish throat. Um, there's a group of believers that have been established there and they probably got established in the Jewish community first. Probably what happened was that some young men that were part of the diaspora 
uh, their spoil. They would leave. They would have to, at some point in their life, they would have to travel back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there was probably a group of young, uh, young men who were traveling back to Jerusalem. And you know what happened after Jesus ascended, right? That the Holy Spirit fell and Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 people were added to the church. And the early church is established. Well, the, the Roman believers, these early Roman believers were probably a part of that group. And so they're probably part of the 3,000 that got saved. They go back to Rome and they establish the church. So the church in Rome was established probably by Jewish believers. But soon enough, Gentiles started to get saved. They heard the good news of the gospel and they too are getting saved. And so now you have this mixture of people in the church who believe uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they've added a few bits and pieces to it. And so for the Jews, the Jews says, yes, we believe in Jesus and we've got to keep all the rules. And so for the Jews, kosher laws, circumcision, these were like really important sacred things for them. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they got saved. Jesus has saved me from my sin. I am free. And they would just kind of keep on sinning. And so you have these two people in this group, uh, in this church in Rome. And, and what happened was that in AD 49, Claudius because the, the Jews were considered troublemakers, so he kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and the Gentiles were left to run the church. Well, five years later, AD 54, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the Jews would come back, and when the Jews came back to the church that they left, the church that they were previously running, the Gentiles had been running it, and the Gentiles are pretty much swinging from the chandeliers. <laughs> no kosher rules, right? Like, no circumcision. Like, Jesus, I've got the grace of Jesus Christ. We can do whatever we want. They're just off and running. And so Paul writes this letter to these two sets of believers that are in the same church. And he writes to them about the centrality of the gospel in their faith. In fact, if you summarize chapter one, he basically says to the Gentiles, you guys are in trouble and you need Jesus. In chapter two, he goes, uh, hey, you Jews, you guys are in trouble and you need Jesus. And then because Paul's an equal opportunity offender, in chapter three, he says, you have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In other words, you're all in trouble and you need Jesus. And so Paul's writing this letter to them because he wants them to understand the gospel. He wants them to understand the centrality of their faith, what grounds them, what their faith is founded on, how they're supposed to be a church that lives in this tension. They've got to clearly understand the nature of faith and the nature of the gospel. And so he writes this letter to them. And this, <coughs> excuse me, the, the key to the whole passage or the whole letter is actually found in three verses in Romans chapter one. And I want to read them to you and then just pull out a couple of thoughts and then we're going to actually take communion together. But this is what it says in Romans chapter 15, or chapter 1, verse 15. I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now remember, Paul's writing to a church. And sometimes what happens, you know, if you've been around church for a long time, we can get so familiar with the gospel that we forget our daily need for it. We oftentimes think, well, the gospel... That's for the pagan, that's for my neighbor, that's for my coworker, that's for the person that doesn't know Jesus. And what Paul's actually saying here is he's saying, I am eager, I cannot wait to come and preach the gospel to the church that's in Rome. Why? Because the church is in desperate need of the gospel. The gospel isn't just for the younger brother. The gospel is for the older brother. 
The gospel calls the Jew who says, hey, it's about Jesus and keeping all the rules in Rome, and calls the Gentile who says, it's Jesus, he forgives me, and I can just keep on doing whatever I want to do. Jesus speaks to both groups. The gospel speaks to both groups, not just at the point of initiation, not just at the point of salvation, but it ought to be speaking to us day in, day out, week in, week out, because we never lose our need for the gospel. Whenever we use our need for the gospel, it becomes about self-righteousness. Whenever we lose this sense that, God, I need the gospel. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need your empowerment. God, I need your righteousness. Whenever we forget that, it becomes about us trying in our own strength to live out faith. And so Paul writes and he says, listen, I'm eager to come preach the gospel to you. Why are you so eager to come and preach the gospel to us, Paul? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember, he's writing to a Roman culture. And in a Roman culture, the most shameful way a person could die was crucifixion on a cross. And Paul takes that which was the most shameful uh, experience of death in the Roman world, in the story of this world, and he says that becomes the epicenter of our faith. I'm not ashamed of that. In fact, he actually uses a little literary term that I'm not going to pronounce how he... It basically means that he's using this ironic understatement to try and communicate how important the gospel is. And he says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a little bit like, you know, if you're you're a high school football coach or maybe you've gone and watched a high school football game or a college game or whatever, and you make this little statement, man, he's not a bad athlete. What you're really saying is, man, he's a really good athlete. And it's this ironic understatement that, 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 that this ironic underestimation that, that Paul is communicating through this little use of the phrase. What he's actually saying, he's not saying, I'm, ashamed, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What he's saying is, the gospel is everything to me. The gospel is the epicenter of my faith. The gospel is the foundation upon which my life is built. And Paul is wanting this church in Rome to understand that their existence, their ability to live in the tension of the worlds in which they live between is founded in the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason that he's not ashamed. And then he goes on and he says this, why, number, reason number two, why do I want to come and preach the gospel to you? Number one, because I'm not ashamed of it. It is the epicenter and foundation of our faith. But number two, he says this, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now remember, Paul's writing to an educated audience, a sophisticated city. It's the capital of the civilized world. And what Paul is saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, is the answer to every human problem to greed and slavery and lust, all of the things that the Romans were dealing with. Paul is saying the reason why I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you, Christian, is because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God, the answer to every single human problem. Because at the root of every single human problem is this little three-letter word called sin. Sin drives and motivates every single issue that you and I as human beings deal with personally, internally, and in relationship to other people around us. 
And God, Paul is writing and saying, hey, I want to come and preach the gospel. I want you to have a right perspective and understanding of faith. Why? Because the gospel is the foundation of your faith. But not only is the gospel the foundation of your faith, the gospel is actually the power to solve every human problem because it deals with the issue that's at the heart of the issue, and that's your sin. And so Paul wanting us to understand the centrality of the gospel as it relates to our faith. And he goes on and he says this, for the gospel... For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, isn't that interesting? We live in a world with a lot of modern day sensibilities. We like to talk about God's love as we rightly should. Because God is love. But God does not wink at sin. God, the gospel, reveals who God is. And isn't it interesting that Paul in writing says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. I would have thought it would have said the love of God. You know, God loves me. He forgives me. He chose me, right? All those things. And all of those things are true. But what Paul is wanting us to understand as the body of Christ, as the household of faith, as those who are his body, his children, he wants us to understand who God is. God is holy, God is righteous. God is above and beyond. God is set apart. And that creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Because if God is holy, that means that God is perfect. God is without sin. But I am with sin. And the gospel, and this is why I love the gospel and I love the fact that the gospel doesn't just reveal the love of God, but first and foremost, to rightly understand the love of God, the greatness of the love of God for us, we've got to understand the holiness and the righteousness of God. And Paul, in writing to this Roman church, is trying to say to the, the Jews who are trying to keep all the rules, you're trying to add self-righteousness to the Jesus that you receive in the gospel, and it's going to fail you because you're not going to be able to measure up. And to the Gentiles, he's writing to them saying, hey, listen, you guys are going on sinning as if, as if the, the sacrifice of Jesus means nothing. It ought to change how you live your life. And this is the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't just reveal the holiness and the righteousness of God. It doesn't just reveal the love of God towards us. The gospel reveals the power of God for us to not only be forgiven, but to us to overcome sin. This is what's central to our faith. How do we become the kind of church that like builds, uh, uh, fulfills its purpose to see people become more and more like Jesus? We've got to have the gospel as our foundation. We've got to have the gospel of Jesus Christ at the very epicenter of who we are. And it's not something that happened 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago when I accepted Jesus for the first time. No, it's a daily thing that I live out. And this is why Paul he actually continues on in this passage, and he says that it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then he doubles down and he says this, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. You and I were designed to be connected with God. That's your most perfect state. That's what you and I were actually designed for as human beings. Now, we know that sin separates us. Now, God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, connects us 
back to Jesus. In fact, 150 times in the writings of Paul in the New Testament, he says, you're in Christ, you're in him, you're in Christ. He's trying to help us understand and never forget that our righteousness is not found in ourselves. Our faith is not found in ourselves. Our righteousness and faith is found in Jesus Christ. But he says this, it's the righteous who then continue to live in faith. That it's not a moment that happened 25 years ago and we move on. No, no, no. It's a moment that we live out daily. It's like an astronaut. Um, it's like an astronaut running out of oxygen. They're just slowly dying because they're not connected. And what Paul is trying to help the Roman Christians understand, and what Paul wants you and I to understand is that you and I have to have the gospel of Jesus Christ central to our existence and our life as a believer because why? Our life is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And this is the foundation of the faith that we build on as a church family. That if we're going to be the kind of church that helps people, helps communities become more and more like Jesus, if we're going to represent the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, we have to be those who have this kind of faith central to our existence as a church family. You have to have this kind of faith as, as central to your existence as a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is the invitation. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus is the foundation of our church. Jesus is the reason why we exist as a church, right? A head dismembered from its body renders the body dead. But Jesus is the head of this church. Jesus is the lead pastor of this church. Jesus is the one who's building and establishing this church. We are his household of faith. We are his body. We are those who exist as members, sons and daughters, and members of his body. It's all him. And it's why Jesus, closing out his time here on earth, he gathered his disciples, those who had committed to following him, and he instituted a meal that we now call communion. I'm going to have the ushers just begin to pass the communion plate. But Jesus instituted this meal because he wanted us to remember what I just talked to you about. We so easily forget. We slip so easily back into trying in my own strength, my own righteousness, my own efforts, my own ability. But Jesus gathered together the disciples and it's, we're told that he broke bread and he shared a glass of wine or a cup of wine with his followers. And he instituted this meal. And I think it's so interesting because what's at the center of our existence as a church isn't the stage, isn't the worship, isn't the preaching, isn't our children's ministry, isn't even our coffee shop out in the lobby. What's at the center of our existence as a church is a meal. And what I find so interesting is that it says in Psalm 23 that he's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And Jesus invites people from all kinds of walks of life, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the haves and the have-nots. And he invites them all to a table. And at the table, we're all equal. There's not one that's better than another. As we talked about this summer, we're all spiritually bankrupt. We're all destitute. And Jesus says, I want you to come to the table. I want you to come and experience 
fellowship and relationship and communion with me at the table. It's why we do this every week. We don't do it as duty. We don't do it as some sort of tradition or routine. We do it to remember and encounter the faithfulness of God, that the faith to which you've been invited into, the faith out of which you live, is rooted in God's faithfulness to you and I. Your faith is a response to his faithfulness. And that little cup of juice, that little piece of bread that you're holding, serves as a symbol a symbol always points you to a greater reality. The sign always points you to the actual. And this little symbol, this little cup of juice, this little piece of bread, is a symbol that points us to the epicenter, the foundation of our faith. Your faith is a response to his faithfulness. And so Jesus, as we close our eyes and just lock ourselves in with you right now. Lord, I recognize, Lord Jesus, that this moment is a sacred moment. Paul, eager to preach the gospel, eager to remind the believers that you, your faith is rooted in what Jesus has done for you. Lord, we remember this morning, Lord Jesus, that it's because of you that we're forgiven. Jesus, it's because of you that we're not only forgiven, we don't have to try to live out our own self-righteousness. But Lord, we also don't want to be those who just wink at sin and just kind of, well, God forgives and moves on. No, 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 God. We want to be those who love you so deeply that, Lord, we want to obediently follow you. Knowing, Jesus, that you forgive, but you also impute righteousness you adopt us as children. Lord, we're no longer slaves to sin, Lord Jesus. We are sons and daughters adopted into the kingdom of God. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you need to uh, just appropriate that into your own thinking, into your own heart. You're struggling. You're wrestling. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you have been forgiven. You have been set free. And the God of the universe who sent Jesus, his son, not only forgives you of your sin, he also empowers you to overcome sin. Lord, we remember this morning. Lord, we're a church built and established on the sacrifice of Jesus. We live in faith in response to your faithfulness to us. So Lord, let us never forget. Let us never move from this place. Let us never move from this space, this territory, Lord Jesus, established on the faith, on the work, on the life of Jesus Christ. Might we never forget. Might you bring us back here day after day after day after day as the starting point, the epicenter, the foundation, that which sustains our faith is you, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we eat and drink together, Lord Jesus, we remember the sacrifice, but we also, Father, encounter your faithfulness afresh and anew, recognizing that you equip us and strengthen us Lord Jesus, to overcome. And so, Jesus, we say thank you. Come on. Let's eat together. Let's drink together. <laughs>